Amen. There's a great example of the power of God's blood to save and change sinners found in the Apostle Paul. At this time in the text, in Acts chapter 9, he's referred to as Saul. He'll later change his name or use a Gentile type name as Paul, Saul, same character. But if you ever want to see somebody whose life was changed, a complete 180, it was the Apostle Paul. And God used this man to do a great work for his glory. And so last week we saw that he got saved. This week we want to see as he begins his discipleship process in his life. Let's stand together. We're going to begin reading in verse 10. Acts chapter 9 and verse 10. It says, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. By the way, that's the right response. When God speaks, yes, sir, what do you want? Anything, I'm here. And that's what he did. It says in verse 11, And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. So God's speaking to Ananias and saying, Paul is praying, and I have shown him a vision that you'll come and you'll help him. He's expecting you. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on his name. So basically, verse 13 and 14, he's saying, are you sure about this, Lord? That's, that's really what he's saying. Verse 15, but the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house. And putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus. I want to preach to you this morning. The title of my message is, Thanks for Your Support. Thanks for Your Support. Ananias supported Paul, and it made a difference in his life. And we ought to support one another. So let's learn from this man and what he did for Paul as we study this life today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, fill me with thy spirit and help me to communicate the truth of your word. Thank you for this good congregation, these people that have gathered with eager anticipation to experience the glory of God and to be transformed and changed by the power of your word. And I pray you'd help us today. We love you. We look to you. We need you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Appreciate you standing. I know that many of you have been to Washington, D.C., and if you have been to Washington, D.C. and uh, been to the uh, reflecting pool, on the east end of that reflecting pool, there is a large statue that's literally in the shadow of the Capitol building. It's Ulysses S. Grant. He is there on top of a war stallion. It symbolizes the strength uh, in the midst of a storm. I've got a more close-up picture of this, if you've seen that there. How many of you have been by this statue and seen it at some point? I figured most of you had. I've been by there. But some two and a half miles away from this statue 
In a very small, nondescript part of Washington, D.C., is a statue of a major general, John Rawlings. He was Grant's chief of staff, and Rawlings knew uh, Grant's weaknesses. And we know he was a flawed man and had many weaknesses, along with many strengths. He, but, but Rawlings knew uh, Grant's weaknesses. And so Rawlings worked to hold Grant accountable and to help him along the way. And it's interesting to me that as you go to D.C., it is the Grant statue that is sold in memorabilia in the bookstore. It's Grant statue that people want to go to and get their picture by and make sure that they see. While no one pays hardly the least bit of attention to John Rollins' statue two and a half miles away in a nondescript park somewhere. But I, I, I want to remind you that it's a testimony of what we're preaching about today and speaking about today is that here we celebrate this individual on top of a war stallion that accomplished something great, became the President of the United States, but nobody gets to the top without any help from somebody else. You see, in America, we often celebrate the achievements of individuals, and I'm not saying that that's wrong. There are special, unique people that God gives special and unique gifts to and uses in unique ways, and we do celebrate the achievements of these individuals. But again, I remind you that these accomplishments are hardly accomplished alone. No one is more heralded in Christianity than Paul. I think that most people would agree, hands down, without much deliberation, that the greatest Christian that we know of that ever lived was the Apostle Paul. Now that may surprise us when we get to heaven someday. You might think, well, where's Paul? He's got to be at front of the line and probably some old grandma somewhere that grew up in the hills somewhere, didn't have a high education somewhere, she might be heralded as the greatest Christian of all. I don't know. There's no way that we can quantify that. But I think from what we know, from our perspective and our understanding, Paul is certainly the premier Christian that we are aware of. But again, he would not have been used like he was without some support of other people in his life. Ananias was one of those people. Not the only one. We'll see in next week, Barnabas was greatly used to help encourage Paul as well. But Ananias was one of those people. So let me ask the question, who was he? Who was Ananias? Well, I'll tell you this, he wasn't a pastor. Not that we can tell, not that we know of. The Bible doesn't describe him as such. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a missionary. He wasn't even a deacon in the church as far as we know of. A lot of times people ask me, was your dad a pastor? No, I'll tell you what my dad was. He was a Christian. I think about that Ananias. He was just a Christian. That sounds funny to say that, doesn't it? He was just a Christian. You say, where do you get that from? The text says, a certain disciple. Nothing fantastic about him. He's just a certain disciple that was in the church there. He's a good man. I, I'd like to think this. If he was at Oakwood Baptist Church, maybe, maybe he just taught a Sunday school. Maybe, maybe he stood out front of the door and smiled at people and shook their hands and said, hey, do you know where you're going? And ushered them in, helped them find a seat. He, he, he was just a certain disciple. He might have just been a face that sang in the choir, not, not a fantastic voice. He'd just be up there. He's just a certain disciple. But just as God had a certain purpose and plan for Paul, he also had a certain plan and purpose for Ananias. Let's talk about Paul for just a moment. What was his certain plan? Notice in verse 15, the Lord said, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel. I have a specific purpose for him. I want him to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I mean, boy, he's going to be in the limelight. He's going to do big things. But I need you, Ananias, to help him get there. Think about how Paul was born into a family with Roman citizenship. 
This allowed him to stand before kings and give the gospel. Remember, he, he did that, right? He, he confronted high-ranking officials with the gospel of Jesus. He was also going to stand toe-to-toe with the Sanhedrin. He was also going to carry the gospel to the Gentile world. Think about how God had specifically equipped Paul to do something most people couldn't do. Paul was highly educated in language, especially Greek, the common language that spread across the whole known world at that time. He was gifted in the use of language. I'll tell you what, I'm always impressed with people who, have a, who can speak two languages. Boy, that just is amazing to me that they can do that. I, I really am bilingual. I don't know if you knew that. I speak English and I speak hillbilly. I, I know those two languages. But outside of that, I don't do too well. And men, I know people, they speak multiple languages and it's very fascinating that they can do that. Paul was one of those gifted people. Not only did he understand training in language, he, he had a special learning about him. We know that he was very academic, that he was, he was high-ranking in, in his, his academics in the Sanhedrin and, and, and in the, the religious world of that day. He also was very good at logic. Remember on Mars Hill, where he would debate with these people, and he knew how to argue with them and debate with them using proper logic? Boy, I'm always impressed with people that know how to argue real well. And I, just this week, I was listening to a political commentator, Matt Walsh. Whether you like him or not, the guy is a gifted person at arguing. I wouldn't want to get into an argument with him. He just knows, knows how to argue with people and very logical and those kind of things. And, and man, Paul would have been that way. He was born a Hebrew. Therefore, he knew a lot about the Scriptures. And so God was using this. And, and it reminds us that each of us has a special personality. Each of us has special talents. If you're saved, you have special spiritual gifts that God gave you to use in the local church. And Paul had special personality, just like each of us do, and talents, and, and, and our background. You know, sometimes I think we look back on our background, and maybe there's something we don't like about our upbringing, or something that wasn't ideal about our upbringing. But do you understand that whatever your background is, God gave that to you, and it's unique to you, and it can be used uh, to help somebody along the way? Some of the most difficult things you've gone through, some of the most hard, hard obstacles that you've had to overcome, whether it's a death of a parent, whether, whether it's a death of a, a spouse, or, 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 what, or maybe it's dealing with cancer, whatever your background is, God gives you these things to try and help somebody else moving forward. And it's interesting how God used these men and these people in his service. But again, I remind you, just as God had a plan for Paul, he also had a plan for Ananias. We saw it in verse 11. He says uh, uh, to him, arise and go into the street, which is called straight. I, I, I like that. I circled that in my Bible. I like that, the straight road. Uh, man, I was talking to uh, Brother Agaty the other day. He was talking about, man, the, the roads around here are anything but straight, aren't they? And for those of us that lived in cities, they're in grids. They're, they're, they're straight. I mean, you know, you, you go east, west, north, south. You kind of got it figured out. Around here, these southern roads, boy, they bend every which way. I think it's because all those moonshiners run from the police, ran a trail like this, and that's where our roads turned into, you know. And Don't you love the southern roads around here? They'll change names right in the middle of the road. I mean, you're on one road and just changing. Now you're on a different road. And you didn't get off on the road. I mean, and he says, listen, I want you to go to the road. I want you to go to the road called straight. And I can see Ananias going, okay, go to the road called straight. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And meet a man from Tarsus. All right, man from Tarsus. Got that. Nice. Uh, named Saul. All right, Saul of, Tar- Saul of Tarsus. Wait a second. I, mean, I can see him really say, say what? What, what? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to go talk to? And he even says that, Lord, you, you know, this guy, 
He's, he's throwing people in prison. He's got letters from the authority to do so. He's killing people. You want me to go talk to him? Man, Ananias uh, would have been especially nervous about this because think about it, what we gather from him is he must have had some kind of leadership or prominence in the church in Damascus. See, what that says to me is that he would have most likely been one of the main targets of Saul. Now he's got to go and talk to Saul. But notice what he did. He fulfilled God's plan for his life, and in doing so, he was a great support to this man of God, Saul of Tarsus, we know as the Apostle Paul. Before we go any further this morning, can I ask you a couple of questions? If you you don't get anything else out of the sermon this morning, think about these questions throughout the week. Is there someone God would have me speak to this week? Did you notice that in the text? That God said, I want you to go speak to Saul of Tarsus. Is there someone that God wants me to speak to this week? About the gospel? About encouraging them? About helping them? Is there someone God wants me to Here's the second question I want you to ask. Is there somewhere God would have me go this week? It was very specific. He said, I want you to go to this place. Where does God want you to go this week? Where is God going to take you over the next seven days as part of His plan for your life? And then here's the last question. Is there something that God wants me to do this week? You know, I think sometimes we get it all kind of wonky in our mind. We we think that God wants us to do some big thing. We always think of some Billy Graham evangelistic crusade. When it could be, God just wants you to do some small task this week. Talk to somebody. Go to some place. Call somebody. Do something that you think is insignificant. But it's a big deal in their life as far as their discipleship is concerned. Now let's get into our message this morning. I want to give you three ways to support other believers. Three ways to support other believers. Number one, we must support each other with acceptance. We must support each other with our acceptance. Now, uh, over the years of ministry, I, I, I don't know if you've gathered this or not, but I like preaching. It's one of my favorite things to do. And so I, I, anywhere I could preach, any opportunity, I mean, I've preached on buses, I've preached in nursing homes, I've preached all over the place, and I've, I've preached in prisons a lot of times, and I, I enjoy preaching in prisons. It's been a long time since I've been able to preach in a prison, but I've preached in farm camps, I've preached in uh, medium security prisons, and I have preached in maximum security prisons. One time I was preaching in a maximum security prison, and uh, I was getting ready to preach, and there was a couple of the guys that were, they were kind of chaplain's assistants, and so they were, they were able to like set up the chairs, put the hymnals out, kind of get things ready, and there was about maybe six of them, and, and they were like, they kind of came up to me and said, hey, before the service starts, let, let, let's pray. And we got to talking, and we were going to pray together, and I had talked to some of the guys, and listen, I learned that you, you, don't, you don't, it's just not kind of apropos to ask somebody, so, so what are you in for? And I'm in a maximum security prison, so I know whatever it is, is probably not real good. But one of the fellows, I remember he was sharing with me what he did, and he was telling me, yeah, I'm in for life, man. And then we got to praying, and they, I, I'm, not, I'm not like this myself personally, but they wanted to hold hands. And I felt a little awkward about that. I'm in a men's prison, these are some rough men, and we're all holding hands. And that was kind of weird. And I'm holding hands, and I'm standing there holding hands in a circle praying, and I'm thinking to myself, these guys are in here for life. This is a little uncomfortable. I suppose if a known murderer had just become a Christian and wanted to join our church, 
What if their name was in the papers? You remember what a newspaper was. Okay, I, I should rephrase that. Maybe they're on the internet, and they're all over the internet, a known notorious murder, and they come into Oakwood Baptist Church, and they say, you know, I like it here. I want to join this church. I wonder how many of us would be a little bit skeptical of that. I wonder how many of us would be going, I don't know, I bet that's just jailhouse religion that he got. I imagine some people would be not just skeptical of whether or not he really got saved, we'd be a little bit of afraid. Hey, preacher, I mean, come on now. I believe God can save anybody, and I, I believe everybody needs a chance, but do they need a chance around here? You know, I mean, we, we got a lot of nice folks, and we got kids running around here. I mean, we need to think about this kind of stuff. I mean, how well would we accept somebody like Saul? Ananias was skeptical. We saw in verses 13 and 14, Ananias was afraid, and for good reason. But here's what I'm trying to tell you this morning. Everybody needs to be accepted by someone. Come on, I'm an old guy, born in 1977, grew up in the 80s. And some of you are thinking, that's just a pup. Okay, whatever you think, but I'm not endorsing this show, but how many of you remember that old show, Cheers? All right? And we talk about the power of music. Remember, I always tell you what's remembered in so uh, song, what's sung in song is remembered long. Listen, I'm not endorsing that show. It's about people hanging out in a bar, but I can sing you that song. <laughs> Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows. You see, and then some of you are going to be thinking that all day long. And the song about a bar is sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to go where people know. The people are all the same. And you want to go where everybody knows your name. You know, that's actually some good preaching right there. I mean, if we sang that song about a bar... How much more should the church of the living God be that place? Where people are glad that you're here. They know your name. They're glad that you're... And listen, if a person has been accepted by God, then we should do our best to accept them even if they think and act somewhat differently than us. I want to point something out to you. Notice verse 17. He says, circle this, Brother Saul. Don't you like that? He walks in the door. Saul, remember at this time, he's blinded temporarily. And he walks in the door and he says, Brother Saul. Those must have been some sweet words. Now, they seem like weird words, words in our day. When I was a youth director, everybody called me Brother Michael. That's what the church wanted people to call you. They called me Brother Michael. It's kind of like a, a symbol of respect, I guess. And, and sometimes I'd go down to the public school and, 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 it'd be out, and one of the teenagers from our church would see me and you could tell they were embarrassed in front of their friends to call me Brother Michael. It seemed weird to them. It'd be like, uh, this is uh, Michael right here. You know, he's my youth pastor. And I understand, it's a little, maybe we, we still do that around here. We refer to a lot of people here as brother so-and-so. And, and I'm pointing this out because it's actually biblical. Now, I, I don't think it's wrong to not call somebody 
brother so-and-so. If I just saw Scott, say, hey, Scott, how's it going, man? And sometimes I do that, but sometimes I say, brother Scott. I, I think it's good for, especially to show our young people, to refer to people with respect. And so a lot of times I've heard some people call sister so-and-so. A lot of times I just say miss so-and-so and just kind of be respectful there. But, but I think it's interesting, even though it might seem cheesy to the world, I think it's interesting that that language is used. And, and, and you know what he was saying when he said brother Saul? He was saying, I accept you. You are my brother now. We're in the same family now. We're no longer enemies now. I'm accepting you for who you are. I, I think this is great. Because you never know how your smile can help somebody. You never know how a nice handshake can help somebody. And I'm telling you, let's have a friendly church. Let's not just sit in our spot with our hands folded. Go shake somebody's hand. And if you don't know who they are, hey, I'm sorry. I've never had the pleasure of meeting you. What's your name? My name's Michael. How are you? I mean, and get to know somebody. I mean, for crying out loud, this is how we can help disciple somebody in their life. A hug. Oh, I was, I was pleased to see today just sitting up on the platform watching some of our members find each other and give give a good hug there's nothing in the world wrong with that a kind word you never know the difference that you can make to somebody else's faith and their discipleship by just accepting them let me ask you a question when was the last time that you offered to take somebody to lunch with you hey what are you doing this afternoon what are you doing after church let's go get a bite to eat Hey, we got a big pot of soup on the, on, the, on, the, on the stove. Why don't you come over and have a meal with us? You see, it's the little things that we can do to just make people feel a little bit more accepted. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Now, Pastor, some people are hard to love. True. And if you're one of those people... You probably wouldn't know it, but if you are, stop it. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to make it hard on other people. Some people, it's just hard to love. Uh, some people, hey, listen, some people are very demanding. It's true. Come on, we've used this expression. Don't, don't check out on I me. Mean, don't look at me like that. Everybody was doing real well until I started saying this stuff. Listen, some people are high-maintenance. They are. It's true. But that does not give us an out. I want you to imagine if the disciples had not befriended Paul. What would our world look like today? If they said, man, that guy's hard to love. Man, he, he, this is high maintenance. I got to go. Do you know where the street called Straight is? That's on the other side of town. And this guy's blind. He doesn't even know where he's going. I'm going to lead him around for three days. <laughs> High maintenance people, you know? No, it made a difference. That's what I love about the church. You know, there are some clubs you can only get in if you've got a lot of money. There are some clubs you can only get in if you're an important person. There are some clubs you can only get in if you're cool. There's, and by the way, that's good news. You can be uncool and come to church, you know. 
I'm telling you, I, I have found that in God's church, I don't care what color your skin is, what your background is, how much money you got in the bank account, how cool or uncool you are, if you'll just show up and stay around, buddy, I'm telling you, there's a place for you to fit in. And we've got to, be a good, we've got to do a good job of accepting people. Somebody said this, God accepts me, that is grace. I accept that He accepts me, and that's faith. I accept me, and that is peace. I accept you, and that is love. You accept me, that is fellowship. I think there's something good to that. We must support each other with our acceptance. Number two, I need to hurry here. Number two, we must support each other with our instruction. Before James Garfield became the President of the United States, he was actually the President of Hiram College in Ohio. And one father came to him and asked him if the course of his studies could not be shortened so that his son might be able to complete his studies in less time. So you understand what I'm saying? The dad came and said, listen, I really want my son to graduate faster. Can you just shorten the class and, and that way he can graduate sooner and get on with things? And James Garfield, the President of Hiram College, said this, certainly. But it all depends on what you want to make of your boy. When God wants to make an oak, he takes 100 years. When he wants to make a squash, it requires about two months. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Don't you wish you could be as witty as some people are, you know? Here's what I'm trying to tell you. It takes time to educate and instruct people. Listen, guys, I, I, we can take something simple. I give announcements every week. And in recent days, we had a debate on should they be given in the middle of the service or at the end of the service. And I've come to the conclusion, it doesn't matter when I give those thinking announcements, most of you aren't listening to me anyway. <laughs> because I can announce something for one month straight in every single service, and at the end of one month, somebody can come up and say, now what time is that thing? <laughs> you know what that reminds me? It takes time for people to get it. It takes time to give instruction when it comes to the things of the Lord, the Bible and Christian living. You know, Paul begins now the process of a lifetime of being discipled and of discipling others. And yes, that's what it is. It is a process of a lifetime. Listen, I've been saved for over 35 years and I'm still being discipled. I'm still discipling others. Sometimes I think to myself, well, I've used that illustration before. I've said that before. But the truth of the matter is, is most of you don't remember what I preached last week. So you don't remember the illustration all that much. And even if you do, I should say it again. Because sometimes my family says, Dad, you say that all the time. Because somebody's new and somebody's got to get it. Notice that in this process, the instruction began with baptism. Look at verse 18. And he immediately there fell from his eyes, had been scales, and he received sight for the, and arose and was baptized. So what that means is Ananias showed up and he said, hey, here's what you need to do now that you're a believer. And by the way, folks, let me just say this. That's the first step in following the Lord after you get saved. The first step, according to the New Testament, is to obey him in baptism. Let me just give you a little bit of discipleship instruction. Are you ready? I always illustrate it this way. This is the water. We go down into the water. The word baptize literally means immerse. You go down into the water. The water crosses your body. Jesus died on a cross. He was buried. 
He rose from the dead. And aren't you thankful for that? It's symbolic. It's a testimony. An outward testimony of what Jesus has done inwardly in our life. Hey, most of you can thank God that He didn't say, all right, now that you're saved, you need to stand up in front of everybody and give your testimony audibly in front of everybody because you know most people are terrified of public speaking. Sometimes people, people would, if given the choice between death and public speaking, they'd choose death. All you got to do is stand in some water and let them dunk you. And what you're doing is you're showing whose side you're on. I like that. What happened now is as Paul identified in his baptism, what he said is, I identify with Jesus Christ, the one I was persecuting, and now I'm also identifying with these people. The people that I was enemies with, the people that I hated and persecuted, I'm now saying I'm on their side. And the people that I was on their side, now I'm enemies with. He, he was saying, I'm showing what side I'm on. And that was instructed to him and talked to him by Ananias. He explained this to him. And I say to you this all, all, all the time. We, our goal as a church is to go, win, baptize, and help me with that last one, teach. What are we doing today? Why do we have Bible classes in Sunday schools? We're teaching. Why are we studying the life of Paul? Because I'm trying to teach you what the Bible says. Why are we going to come back tonight and study Joseph while we're teaching? Why are we going to be on Wednesday night studying the apostles? We're teaching. We're constantly trying to teach. Why do we have one-on-one -on -one discipleship? Because we're teaching. We are instructing and supporting each other with our instruction. Because listen to me, our world is in a mess and a lot of it is because we are biblically illiterate. We have lost good, sound theology. Our people in churches, they come and they get feel-good messages and they are entertained and they don't know nothing about the Bible. They have not been instructed. And therefore, when they hear things on the internet and they hear things on the news and they hear things at the water cooler, then they are blown around by every wind of doctrine and every rudiment of the world because they have not properly been instructed by the Bible. We need to learn what God has said to His people. And we support one another when we teach one another. We have to be educated in the ways of God. Number three, we must support each other with our encouragement. Boy, God was really working in Saul's life, wasn't He? He put him under conviction. He converted him and now He's coaching him. And this Holy Spirit transformation, notice how it happened. It, it happens in two directions, and God does this in all of us if we let him. One, he, uh, he, he takes our natural characteristics and refines them. And what I mean by that is, remember, Saul, or Paul, was a natural leader. I know some people say, are, are leaders born or are they made? And I say yes. I, I think they're both. I think... Certain people are born with certain instinctual characteristics that just kind of lend themselves to more natural leadership. I get it. Um, Saul was a natural-born leader. I mean, it, we, again, we've never met Paul, but what, what, what we know about him is the guy was a self-starter. And that's what I gather from him. And I like people like that. I mean, when, when we're looking for staff around here in a leadership position, I want self-starters. I mean, man, if I have to... Tell you everything you need to do. Boy, I, I always tell our folks, if I have to do your job, then one of us is unnecessary. And I don't plan on going anywhere, so that must mean you. <laughs> right? I mean, like, like I, I like guys that, I mean, they get up in the morning and they're like, let's go. That was Paul. And, and, and 
He, he was a self-starter. Notice, we're going to see this in his life. He was bold. I mean, bold. He, he had a tendency sometimes to rub people the wrong way, but he told it like it was. He, he was a very motivated person. He was a gifted thinker. He was a gifted speaker. And so what God did, notice this, is God began to refine the gifts that he had. Because God always does that. He takes who you are and the strengths and the gifts and the abilities that you have and he refines them in that sanctification process so that he can use you to accomplish his tasks. But I want you to also notice what he did. He, he kind of changed his undesirable characteristics too. And don't we all have some of those? And what he did was he, he, he you know, think about what happened with Paul. He took when he, when he was known as Saul, right, in our, our understanding, he took the cruel hatred that Saul had and he turned it into love. Really, what did Paul have love for? First of all, I think you cannot deny he had a love for Jesus. No doubt about it. He once had a hatred for him. That disruptive Jew, that imposter, that false messiah, and now, now he loves him. Who else did he love? He loved Jewish people. This is a man that said, I would wish that I myself could be accursed so that my people might be saved. You know what else he loved? He loved Gentiles. I know we get it backward in our thinking sometimes. We think that Paul's ministry was to the Jews. No, his ministry was to the Gentile people. He carried the gospel to the heathens of the world and, and, and led them to Christ and discipled them and lived among them. He loved them. He loved the lost. Notice how God changed him from, from this aggressive spirit to becoming more of a peaceful man. God tempered a man who was proud with his own accomplishments to being humble when he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. Aren't you thankful that God takes the good in you and uses it for your glory? And God takes the bad in you and, he, and he, he refines it. I'm thankful for that. And let me tell you something. When you're going through a lot of change, you know what you need more than just about anything? A lot of encouragement. Listen, think about that. Think about teenagers. You guys are going through a lot of change. I mean, I, I, your bodies are growing faster than you can keep up with. I mean, come on, some of those old folks, you remember when you're, I remember my shoe size grew from an eight and a half to a ten and a half in about three months. You remember, you, some of you guys in here, you remember when you grew so fast, you could, you, 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 your feet grew faster than your body, and you, you looked like a duck, and you ran like one, and you couldn't keep up. You, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, these guys all pick, I'm, I'm talking about the guys a little bit, I mean, they pick at each other about voice cracks. You remember when you did that? And talking like that all the time. Just changing. You know what our teenagers need? A lot of times what's going on in their life, they're no longer a child, but they're not an adult. It's a, it's a difficult limbo to live in. They're becoming independent. They don't, you know, don't want mommy always telling them what to do, but they still need mommy to tell them what to do. It's tough. Need a lot of encouragement. 
Think about all the seasons of life you go through and we go through. You're growing, you're changing spiritually. Don't you think you don't need, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you think you need some encouragement in your life? I don't think there's anything wrong with rebuke. There's nothing wrong with a hard message that's in our face. Sometimes the text demands it. We also need some encouragement along the way. There's a woman in New York City. Her name was Jean Nidich. She's frustrated. She's frustrated with her health. She's frustrated with her weight. So she decided to go on a diet. And like many of us that go on diets, she was able to progress to a certain extent, and she just couldn't get over the last hump. And so she found a group of friends, seven of them to be exact, and they decided to just encourage one another until they they reached their goals. Those seven friends grew into over one million participants. And they titled their group, their friendship, Weight Watchers. Gene was being interviewed years after the establishment of that group, and they were in a park. A man was interviewing her, and she was pushing a child on a swing. And he was, she was asked about her program, and this is what she said. She kind of paused and looked at what she was doing, and she said, huh, I guess I learned that some people just need a little push. And I think it's so true in our Christian life. Why, why do you think all the time I'm asking in my Sunday school class, how many of you read your Bible every day this week? Sometimes in life, you just need a little push. I'd imagine some of you get sick of me saying, hey, on Saturday, we're having outreach. You know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to encourage you to share your faith with other people. And I know some people might not share their faith unless they get a little push. You know, I always say, come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. It'll help you. It won't hurt you. It'll be a blessing to you. Because some people in life just need a little push. You know why sometimes I want to just write letters every Monday to church members and let you know that I'm praying about you, I'm thinking about you? And I don't know what's going on in your life, but I'm praying for you. It's because I noticed in my life, sometimes I just need a little push. I need a little encouragement. I need a little help. And I'm glad that a man named Ananias, who was he? Just a certain disciple. He showed up and he gave Paul just a little push. Boy, that little push turned into steam rolling down a hill. And look at what he did in his life. Let me ask you some questions this morning as we close. Do you make other people feel accepted? So I realize you, you don't have to be best friends with everybody. I get it. But what are you doing to make other people feel accepted? Who is it outside of your little limited circle have you befriended? taken to lunch, gotten to know in a way you otherwise would not have. Question number two, are you being discipled? Now, in a strict sense, you could say, yeah, I'm here this morning. Good. That is a form of discipleship. Is there somebody in your life that you look to, that you have spiritual conversations with, that's helping you sharpen your Christianity? 
Here's the question. Who are you discipling? Who have you come alongside and just try to talk about spiritual things so that you could teach them and help them and encourage them? My final question is this. Are you an encouragement to other people? I found this quote and I've been using it a lot lately. I'm going to use it again. Are you a fountain or are you a drain? And I hope that everywhere you go, you're a fountain of encouragement to somebody else. I would hate it if people saw me coming down the hall and went, oh, great. And not if it's our staff and they're not working, then I would, that'd be okay. But uh, you understand what I'm, I want to be a blessing. I want to be a blessing.